Okay, so we begin again this morning in Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> beginning with verse 31 and 32. October the 7th, this is lesson 42 in our studies in, in the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> and we're looking today simply, as a result of these two verses, at the issue of divorce. The issue of divorce. This is one of those topics in Scripture that's just absolutely impossible to get a handle on unless we consider everything that the Bible says about this topic. Uh, stopped short this morning of gathering a lot of data, like I did, national data. When we were looking at murder, I gave you a lot of numbers uh, about the current situation, uh, not only in the U.S., but in, in the world. Uh, regarding murder, uh, I'm going to stop short of that. We know that the numbers right now fluctuate fluctuate between 50 and 60 percent, you know, on marriages that end in divorce. Depending on what data you read, uh, some would even be be higher. So, without just creating confusion and looking at that, <clears throat> we know that it exists, and we know that the Word of God speaks about it. In Matthew chapter five, here we began to get. Uh, well, we look, that's the first mention of divorce. He'll, rela- he'll refer to that, Jesus will, the first mention of divorce in the Bible, which goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And we'll start there and try to get some clarity. So I've asked this morning for the Lord to give <laughs> my words clarity. I assure you it's, it's all up to Him. And when we're done, uh, my, most time my desire is to whet your appetite about things. I hope I can do a little better than that today. I hope that it can be clear on what we're talking about this morning, even in a greater way. Jesus continues to, to teach. His disciples are around Him. Again, in chapter 5, verse 31, we'll begin. He says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And again, Jesus here is referring to those verses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, where Moses addresses the issue there. Now, as always, as, or as we've seen with the, the, some of the preceding verses here, Jesus begins by saying, it was said, and again, to remind you, he's talking about yet another reference to the traditional teachings of the rabbis from the past. That's what he's referring to here. The teaching that the people had been subjected to which had come into play over the course of many, many years, uh, particularly since the exile and so forth. You remember we'd mentioned that they even, during that time, they got away even from the Hebrew language. They mostly spoke Aramaic after that. And a lot had been lost. And for lack of a better term, you don't need to couch it in Jewish terms, man had come in and had taken the Word of God and had kind of molded it this way and that way. Uh, to make it more palatable for him. That's basically what had happened. And uh, Jesus is making this point here. And he uses this example as he's teaching here about divorce. And he makes reference to this certificate of divorce that Moses uh, talked about. Um, It's the first reference to divorce in the Bible, I understand, these particular verses from Deuteronomy. But the problem here is it just hadn't been, as we said, it hadn't been interpreted properly 
or correctly by the Jewish rabbis because what they had done, they had taken this as a command. They had taken these verses and said, this is what Moses said to do. And that's not the nature of what's recorded. That's not the nature of that language there. The passage is not meant to condone or to encourage divorce. It does not call for divorce. It doesn't demand divorce. Those particular verses there from Deuteronomy 24. But what it is, it's a statement. It's a statement of a very narrow nature that deals with specific law given by Moses to deal with adultery. That's really the point of what he's talking about there. And it shows, quite frankly, how an improper divorce leads to adultery. This is the overriding theme. This is what he was, was talking about there. So we have that provision for divorce in the broad spectrum was literally an accommodation of God's grace. That's what it was. Because we know from Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, there's a very plain statement about God's idea of divorce, and it simply says that He hates divorce. That's the mind and heart of God over the issue in particular. We know that that wasn't part of the plan from the beginning as man, uh, as He ordained marriage and those people came together. We know that. And we would also have to make a reference to Matthew chapter 19, and we'll have to get there later, sometime later. Matthew chapter 19, verse 8 where Jesus is talking about this issue again, and He's addressing those people. He says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But He says, From the beginning, it has not been this way. It hasn't been that way. So that's what we have. Jesus is trying to clear this up. Remember, Jesus is still dealing with matters of the heart here, right? That's what He's dealing with. And this issue of divorce has come up. And Christ is making some things clear here. This certificate of divorce did not make the divorce right, nor did it give, uh, but it did rather give the woman protection from slander. And it gave her literally the legal right to remarry, which was most often necessary in that day and time. You've got to go back and remember what that culture was like. So we can just ask the question, okay, here's a woman uh, who's been divorced, and as he's going to say, for, just for any reason, we'll look at that in some detail here in a moment. And she finds herself left without anything. And this was a protection for her, this certificate of divorcement. Okay, because now, at least in the legal perspective, in the culture there, she could remarry and so forth. So this was part, this was part of the problem. To not be able to do that uh, in that agrarian culture would be very, very difficult uh, for a woman. There were exceptions. There were some uh, women who uh, were able to survive for whatever reason. I'm sure it probably had something to do with their extended family and monetary resources, their particular economic situation, but for the most part, they were in dire straits. They were in dire straits. So that's part of what we find there. But he makes reference to this in, in Deuteronomy 24, this, this word indecency which is really interesting to look at because he says if a man finds some indecency in his wife, that literally means the nakedness of the thing. That's what it means in 
its most basic literal terms, the nakedness of the thing. And right away we begin to think, well, okay, well, it's, it's definitely talking about something that's, that's sexual. But it seems to be limiting, or when you look at how the word is used in other places, it's referring to sins that fall short of the actual act of adultery, he says. Because literally at that time, uh, the law was already in place regarding adultery, right? In a couple of places, you can look at Leviticus 20.10. So what was the penalty for adultery? It was death. Okay. So it wouldn't even make sense for it to, be, to include adultery. It was those other things. The only other time I understand from the study that you see that phrase used, which would be rendered the nakedness of the thing, is in, um, oh Lord, I can't remember the site, but I, maybe you'll remember, when the Lord has given them instructions about being in the camp, and what they're to do with the waste that comes out of their camp, they're to take it outside the camp, that's where that word is used again. So it has a, a broader reference about uh, anything that would serve to defile or to make nasty or, you know, well, the Jews had taken that to mean anything that's unpleasing, anything that the husband don't like, okay, that's the way it over the years kind of came in to, to be expected and understood, which really points to the heart of man, <laughs> I mean, you can take, as we see, the Word of God and mix it and change it and, and bend it, you know, I guess, to get out of it what you want to get out of it. Uh, but it's much more specific than that if we look very, very closely. So it couldn't really refer to adultery in particular there in that case because that was punishable by death. So the Lord's primary purpose here was not to give an excuse for divorce but to show the potential evil of it. He's going to talk about what happens when a divorce is pursued for the wrong reasons. This is what happens. And if it's pursued for the wrong reasons and people act on it, then almost always the actions that are, uh, come out of that on, behalf, on the part of those who were previously married and now divorced leads to adultery. That's what he's talking about. So this is building up. Okay, Jesus is talking, going back and looking initially at these verses from Deuteronomy that those, the Jews, would go back and kind of wave in front of everybody's face. And they were saying, once again, they were saying, this is what Moses said to do. That's not the case. That's not what Moses was doing. He was making a point. The simple granting of a certificate in God's eyes did not make divorce legitimate. It didn't. And I would remind you again that we're looking at issues of the heart even then, it did not make it legitimate. He adds that Moses is saying that such a divorce creates a situation where adultery is likely to occur because the, the grounds for the divorce from the beginning, beginning were not substantial, were not right. What was the only ground at that point that a person would be released from a marriage at that point? What? Adultery, right. And the penalty, the penalty for adultery initially was death at that point. And the death relieved the person, obviously, or took them out of the, the binding of the divorce. So that's what he's saying. The Jews came to teach that as a command, even to the point that, I mean, some of the, some of the reasons they give, if you go back and look at history, at the reasons in the Jewish culture, Jewish rabbis would authorize, if you will, or attempt to justify marriage on some really outlandish grounds. And I'm going to do something that I rarely do. 
But I said, I'm not going to write all this out. I'm just going to bring this. I can't do this justice really without reading it. And it's very interesting. We'll give you about a page here. And I've made reference before to the book, The Sermon on the Mount by Quarles. I use this a lot. It's just a really in-depth commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. But he adds some things here, and I want you to listen intently because it's not just to wow you over these, these particular reasons that people would give for divorce, but I want you to focus just on the heart of man and how things get really discombobulated, is that a word? <laughs> Misconstrued for various, various reasons. The ambiguity of the phrase, anything proper, led to a significant debate over the correct interpretation among the rabbis. You need a little history here. <clears throat> the school of Halil interpreted the phrase very permissively as including anything that displeased one's husband. We don't want to go there, do we? The school of Shammai, I believe it is, S-H-A-M-M-A-I, this particular school, Jesus... Uh, <coughs> Let's see, let me find my spot. i got these bifocals on. They interpreted anything proper as any reference to any kind of sexual sin. So you've got two different schools of thought among the Jewish rabbis at that point. By the time the composition of the Mishnah, which occurred around 200 A.D., it says here, most rabbis had seen, uh, seemed to have embraced the view of Halil. Okay. So the, the Mishnah specified numerous and ridiculous grounds for divorce that made the covenant of marriage meaningless. Now, this has occurred over uh, you know, a number of years, hundreds of years. So. so that's what we have. And I'm not going to give you every site. They actually cite the portions in the Mishnah here where these things are recorded. I'm going to bypass that. If you want to look at this later, fine, but it wouldn't mean anything to us, I don't think. The Mishnah stated that a man could divorce his wife if she were barren, if she became a deaf mute, or if she had epilepsy, if she had tetanus, she had warts or, or leprosy, uh, she could be divorced and get that certificate of divorcement. Uh, it insisted that a man could divorce his wife if she failed to perform certain services within the home. Each day she was required to grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse the children, make the beds, and weave the wool. If she brought one servant, and this is, this is specified in their guidelines, if she brought one servant into the marriage, she did not have to grind. Okay? She didn't have to do that. She didn't have to bake. And she didn't have to wash. If she brought two servants, a second servant into the marriage, she didn't have to nurse the children or to cook. Talk about getting in somebody's business. If she brought, if she brought a third servant into the home, she did not have to make up the bed or work in wool. And we don't have any servants in my house. These things still don't get done. But if she brought four servants into the home, she could sit in a chair all day long and not lift a finger. However, if her husband considered her lazy, he still had the prerogative to divorce her. Rabbinic law also stated that certain physical defects in the wife were so offensive that they were legitimate grounds for divorce. The general principle was that any physical defect or blemish that was serious enough to disqualify a man from the priesthood was sufficiently repulsive to serve as a ground for divorce. Now that's man putting his wits to the, to the problem. Okay. Consequently, a man could divorce his wife if she, if, uh, she had a head that was wedge-shaped. If it was turnip shaped 
or hammer-shaped. Or if her head was otherwise malformed, such as sunk in or flat on the back, he could divorce his wife if she had poor posture, or if she had thinning hair, or overly thick hair, I guess. He could divorce her if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or if she had bushy eyebrows. It's ridiculous. He could divorce her if she had a pug nose. I kind of like the pug nose. Cute, cute pug nose. The condition of her eyes was particularly important. If she had eyes too high or too low, if she were cross-eyed, had no eyelashes, had eyes of two different colors, watery eyes, or eyes big as a calf, or small like a goose, any of those justified the divorce. The man could divorce his wife if her nose were too big or too little, her ears were too floppy, if she had an overbite or underbite, missing teeth, a poor figure, a swollen belly, a protruding navel, an outie. Bony ankles or knees, swollen feet, if she were bow-legged, suffered from swelling of the big toe, if her heel had protrusions, if the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, or if she were ambidextrous. Go figure. I don't know. A man could divorce his wife if she ate something that he had forbidden her to eat. Here's one. He could divorce her if, in law, uh, if the in-laws moved into the same city to be near her. The husband had the right to divorce his wife if she broke the laws of Moses or if she transgressed Jewish custom uh, by going outdoors with her hair unbound. Said some things about the type of clothes she wore. Or spoke to a man other than her husband. If she cursed her husband's parents or yelled at her husband, he could divorce her. If she had just a general bad reputation, burn the supper, that one's in there, or simply found someone else. And then, of course, you know, there, if she refused to uh, come uh, with him sexually, sexual relations, they, they even went so far, and I'm not going to read it, it's uncomfortable for me, but if she, they, they went so far as to specify the number of times that a woman would need to be with her man based on his job. I mean, if he was a sailor and was gone a particular time or if he worked in the fields or whatever, they, they went so far as to lay that out. You know, we read about things that the Jews did. We often refer to these laws and legal matters that, uh, that seem to uh, you know, number in an excess of 600. Okay, this would certainly be part of that. And even in a historical perspective, and they have a site here from Josephus, you know, the, the noted historian, he stated that divorce was permitted for any cause whatsoever during that time. That's what he did. So that's what, that's what man does with it, to suit his own whims. But to the Lord, it's much more, much more serious than that. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, he says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I know when we're studying, we talk about leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Alright? I hope you remember the, the true nature of this verse. Leaving, that is setting up the own, the own, your new family unit that's responsible. The responsible one to another. There's tons of things in the Scriptures about the husband-wife relationship and yet both are under Christ. They leave the uh, 
authority, if you will, of their parents. They're now a new family unit. But they don't abandon their parents. Please don't read that in there because there's scripture about that as well. They cleave, and that's a very, very strong term, talking about the nature of their unity, the nature of their bond together. And they come together as one flesh. That's the weaving part. Two lives woven together, meshed together. This is God's purpose. This is God's intent, right? That's what He desires. This is His perfect will, I guess you could say, in the matter. Matthew 19.6 says, They are no longer two, but one flesh. What, and he adds, What God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man separate. Well, the second part of what we're looking at today, uh, regarding the Scripture, of course, is in Matthew 5.32. Where Jesus again says, and he demonstrates his authority here over the rabbinic tradition. But I say to you, is what Christ is saying. Listen to me, this is what I'm telling you. And this has been his way as we've looked so far at these scriptures. He says that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her an adulteress or makes her commit adultery. This is what he's saying. The message is that unjustified divorce leads to adultery. So, Jesus' message to the scribes and Pharisees was simply this. You consider yourselves to be great teachers. You've looked at this issue. This is what you've been teaching. You consider yourselves to be keepers of the law. But basically what you've done with this is allow, I guess what we would call nowadays, a no-fault divorce. And he says this has resulted in a huge blight, a blight of adultery in particular, on God's people. And it's contaminated God's people. And it's not untrue today if people choose to look at this in the same light. By that I mean that divorce should be granted for any particular reason. And it certainly gets away from what God has intended and what God has provided. It was simple then. A little piece of paper, if you will, was required, quite frankly, in most cases it would appear, just to legalize somebody's lust. If the man got it in his mind that he needs something else or prefers someone else, then because of this misunderstanding and misinterpretation from Deuteronomy, he could say, well, we'll just write this out and be done with it, and it was acceptable. And while that piece of paper, as we said earlier, might help the woman in some fashion by giving her a legal ground, uh, this was not God's intent for it to happen in the first place. Because he says plainly, except for the reason of unchastity, as it's recorded here, makes her to commit adultery. Because she's going to have to go out, in most cases, of necessity, go out and get married again. So look at this, this phrase, except for unchastity. Here's the Greek word pornea. And you can see what comes out of that word, you know, pornography, if you will, and it specifically uh, uh, is related to illicit sexual intercourse. But we learn from this passage here where there is no right to divorce, as we said earlier, there's no right to remarry. Okay, the only grounds for divorce God would recognize is, uh, you know, is clear in this passage here as Jesus is teaching it. 
It's referred to as the exception clause. And it's added here in Matthew as Jesus makes clear that the Pharisees had misrepresented God's law regarding adultery. That is, divorce on the wrong grounds leads to adultery. This is what he was talking about from Deuteronomy. Divorce at some point in Israel's history, obviously, was allowed. Okay? He says Moses allowed you to do this, you know, when a 19, because of the hardness of your heart. So we know at some point that did happen. But we see the grace of God here because what happened there, actually, it, it took the place or pushed aside the, the penalty, if you will, of being executed. And it's a reflection, if you will, of the grace of God in this matter. We see that clearly. These particular actions which are included in this this act of unchastity would include a number of things. Uh, prostitution, homosexuality. The Bible speaks about bestiality, something very unpleasant to even think about, much less speak about. And the death penalty from Leviticus chapter 20 was in place for all of those things. So why did God allow divorce to, you know, replace the death penalty or letting or giving it says as Moses granted them or allowed them to divorce because of the hardness of their heart. I like what MacArthur said about this is just looking at the heart of God and trying to evaluate this in light of other scripture and what we see. He adds that the answer may be that Israel had so completely immersed herself in immorality that there was not a sufficient desire for righteousness left in the people to carry out executions for the offense. And then he refers to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter eight, verse seven. You know where Christ, uh, we, you know, as he says, we see his divine nature, nature being exemplified there when he takes the woman in adultery, and the way that he deals with her there. You know, and says he doesn't condemn her. Go and sin no more. Listen, we can't live without the grace of God. We can't. Is that not the bottom line for us? I don't know how you do, but when you're studying the Word of God intently, you're, you're getting close to the Lord through the study of His Word. Your desire is to be all that you possibly can be in this life as a result of yielding your life to the impact of the Word of God on your life. Now, there's a, there's a point when we, we're encouraged, we feel refreshed and renewed, but we first... If, you're, if your example is like mine, or if your experience is like mine and so many others, we feel about this high, right? When we get close to Him, we have more of that Isaiah experience, don't we? And we see Him. This is what His Word does. And here, remember, Jesus is calling people to look at their heart, to look at the intent of their heart, even in these types of decisions. The one legitimate situation that could potentially end a marriage and divorce apart from death was adultery. Jesus is talking here. And again, that was not a command, but only an option for the offended spouse. The grace of God is allowing for divorce over death, and allowing for that rather, could still be mirrored, this is me, in the, in the response of an offended spouse who is able to respond in grace, forgiveness, and a willingness for the damaged marriage relationship to be restored. I see this a lot of times. Not a lot. But I see it 
where marriages have even been able to overcome an incident of adultery or some other uh, uh, sexual involvement on the part of one of the, the spouses, they've been able to overcome that. They would, I'm sure, testify that it's only because of God's grace. Now, it's not to say that others who don't even know God do the same thing for different reasons. But we're talking about within the family of God here. When you sit down and, and look at all the Bible has to say about it, so basically it offers up four possibilities if you look at the Bible information. And three of these possibilities as far as appropriate interpretation are incorrect. One, of course, would be that divorce is not allowed under any circumstances for any reason. We know that that's not, not true from looking at the Scripture. Divorce and remarriage, secondly, are permissible under any circumstance for any reason or, or no reason. And we know that's not true because the Bible speaks about specific parameters, specific uh, evidences, things that are present in that individual situation. And then thirdly, divorce is permitted under certain cir- circumstances, but remarriage is not. It's a kind of environment that I grew up in. I remember, and that was not right either, because it does. In fact, every, everywhere in Scripture that divorce is authorized and within the guidelines of Scripture that remarriage is considered okay as well. But uh, I had a member, a lady came to me one time talking about <clears throat> the church that she was in uh, and she had gotten a divorce and had remarried. And uh, she said that her church uh, would oust her just because she had done that without any investigation at all unless she wrote out a letter saying that she was currently living in sin and she gave that to the church then they would welcome her back in and I just want to say that the, the Lord has more specific guidelines in his word than that but this is this is an issue that just if it's not handled rightly and if it's not handled according to the word of God there's never going to be any peace for the individual, there's never going to be any peace within their family. We know that divorce, as tragic as it is, whether it's, a, it's the result of maybe just one person in the marriage or whatever, we know that it, that it has its fallout. It has its fallout. I trust y'all got some other duties to handle. <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right. <laughs> got people leaving my class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but here, here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing. When you read, you understand, particularly as we get into the New Testament Scriptures and what's added, and I've got to get to that. Uh, it's about peace. It's about God's grace. It's about forgiveness. It's about this life, whatever the issue is, divorce included, being brought under the realm of the influence of the Word of God and being handled appropriately within that. It can't be what I want, what I like, what makes me feel good, my kids' needs, this, that. It can't be any of that. Follow the Word of God. Because the fourth, the fourth explanation, if you will, is the correct one. And that is that both divorce and remarriage are permitted under certain circumstances. This is the biblical view. So what does the Bible say about that? Now when Jesus was talking, and He was referring mostly to the, the Scriptures in Deuteronomy here, He was talking about Divorce only being allowed in the case of the sexual sin and so forth. That's what he was talking about at that point. And yet we know that uh, in the New Covenant, we know that we have uh, 
uh, information, scripture from the Apostle Paul where he added an additional legitimate ground for divorce and remarriage. Understand that the guideline for the Jew in marriage was simply to marry another Jew. That was their guidelines. And in this age of grace that we live in, this is church age, what is the guideline for, for marriage? That you marry, that Christians marry Christians, as it says, you know, in Second Corinthians six, that you not be unequally yoked and so forth. And you can imagine what it would have been like as the sacrifice of Christ is made and the church age, if you will, you know, all the times that we read about in Acts there, all this is afoot. People are coming to Christ, families are being changed, families are being uh, in one instance, up, uprooted. And by that I mean in the instance where you've got one person in that family who now is a slave to Jesus Christ, and yet you have another one who's not. Okay, And this is the reality of what Paul was dealing with during that time. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. He's talking generally here. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. In verse 12 he says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord. And let me add here, Paul's not saying, uh, this is Paul talking. Before when he says the Lord's given you this, he's talking about something that the Lord has already said. He's already given an an opinion on or already spoken. uh, and, And it's truth. That's what he's talking about. But here he's just saying the Lord hadn't talked about this. Okay, I'm giving it to you. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. That's pretty clear guidance, is it not? And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband or put her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now he's talking about the sanctification of the family. He's talking about the relationship. He's not talking about salvation in somebody's soul. That's not, the, the te- that's not what he's talking about. All right. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister... Here it is. Is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to what? To peace. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? Of course you read this. Well, husbands and wives don't save each other in that context. But Christ is, uh, or Paul here, is making a point about the value, the impact of a Christian witness. And I hope that we get this. When Christ changes the heart of a person, and that person is living that out, even in these circumstances, even when you have a spouse who's not a believer, and yet they're constantly seeing, if you will, this this godly representation of the life-changing impact of the Word of God, the person of Christ indwelling a person, this This is the power. This is what changes a person. And it has great, great potential for that change. So Paul gives this. And so nowadays when we talk about the reasons, if you will, the things that must be present in order to dissolve a marriage, they are death 
or adultery or abandonment, abandonment by an unbeliever, which is what we're looking at here. So God has made that clear. Verse 39 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, The wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. But as it says here, there's a caveat, only in the Lord. Marriage is something to be taken seriously. It is... It is very important to the Christian family. I have people come up to me in my job as a police officer and a police chaplain, uh, and they know that I'm, a, I may or may not know that I'm an elder here. And this has happened two or three times. They bounce in the, my office or something and say, Would you marry us? We're gonna get, we want to get married next week. Would you marry us? <laughs> and I say, No, I will not marry you. <laughs> Why? We want to get married. We love each other. Well, it's much more serious than that. Much more serious than that. And I begin to talk about, you know, use it as a segue to talk to them about Christ and uh, what the Lord requires. And plus, just from a practical standpoint, wouldn't marry anybody without X number of counseling sessions. I mean, even within the church here, we, we do that. This is a serious thing. Very serious. The stability of the family, to say nothing about the potential of creating a situation where people sin against God. We don't want to do that. And by the time, oh, you're too religious for us. Never mind. Okay. That's happened to me two or three times. Because marriage itself or the institution of marriage is not considered to be as important as it should be in our day and time. I think I'm going to be able to do this. I've, I've, what I tried to do after bringing this information together is to look at information that I have. I hope you have a access to these. Um, what are they? The, these little booklets from Grace to You that are on different topics that really take scriptures and they break things down and really enhance your study on a particular topic. Look at this one. It's titled "Divorce and Remarriage," and you can get it's two dollars. So if you want something to take and to study, if you want to be grounded first off in what does the Word of God say. How do we look at this? Then take this. And then Joel was very kind. He gave to me a, he called it a pamphlet, but it's just two pages here uh, from Jerry Rag. I know that they use in their church. And I noticed some of the language is the same as in here in a couple of places. Uh, but there is some information out there that kind of helps bring some clarity to this. We always want to get into the what ifs. What if your situation is this? What if you were married before? What if it, well, it, it, it'll answer all those things. And I'm going to give you some things to think on here just as we conclude. As I've said, what direction do we find today in Scripture regarding the many questions surrounding biblical divorce and remarriage? Well, the Lord hates divorce. We know that. But through His grace, He has provided for His people. Know that. Divorce remains a consequence of sin and should only be entered into with great restraint. (laughs) Excuse me and where no other recourse is reasonably present. The allowance of legal divorce is a concession for the faithful spouse where there is sexual sin or abandonment by the other spouse. Where there are biblical grounds for divorce, remarriage is permissible. 
Divorce on any other grounds is a sin against God and also a sin against that partner of that spouse. The true fruits of repentance following an unbiblical divorce are the desire for restoration and reconciliation where restoration, reconciliation is possible. It's not always possible because of certain circumstances. Where an unbiblical divorce occurred, remarriage would be allowed only if the former spouse has remarried, is an unbeliever, or has died. Divorce or unbiblical grounds or own unbiblical grounds for professing Christians is and should be subject to church discipline. And I know that in my six years here at Faith that we've had to handle this once after many, many months, I think maybe close to a year, if I remember that right, of trying to reason uh, with a person uh, regarding their choice to leave their family and their children and so forth. And, uh, and that person would not repent, so the church took action as Matthew 18 requires. God providentially allows the circumstances people find themselves in when they come to Christ for salvation. Their transformation as a new creation is evidence of their desire to obey the Word of God regarding marriage and divorce. Why would that be any different? Lord's changed my heart, and I want to know what His Word says about this particular issue in my life because I want to be obedient, be obedient to Him. I've got three more, and then I'll stop. Where a believer has divorced on unbiblical grounds but truly repents, God's grace provides forgiveness at that point. However, true repentance is manifested by a desire to pursue reconciliation when such is possible. Remember, it's not possible for former spouse is an unbeliever, or if they've remarried, it's not possible to do that. Where a, believer, where a believer has divorced on unbiblical grounds and has remarried, they're guilty of adultery until that sin is confessed. God's forgiveness is immediate. Immediate. Where true repentance takes place. In this case, there's nothing in Scripture to indicate anything other than that the believer should continue in his or her current marriage from that point forward. And then lastly, the church has a responsibility to uphold the biblical ideal of marriage, especially as exemplified by its leadership. Especially. And I know our church here at Faith Community Church gives much attention to that. I was concerned if I would be able to get all of this out I hope it's clarifying for you. I hope it accurately reflects what the Word of God says. If you want to make access of some of these, couple of these materials here and you didn't get that down, then I'll certainly do my part to make those available to you.